I am Sneha Hirimat, founder of Ace Advisors, a consulting firm specialized in external communications. This is Planet BE, a podcast where every week I will take you backstage to meet a private equity player. Today's episode has been sponsored by Jasmine Capital, a placement agent and secondary transaction advisor for private equity, infrastructure, and private debt. Jasmine Capital covers Europe, North America, Asia Pacific, and the Middle East. Hello, and welcome to Planet PE. My guest today is William Green, partner at Stafford, head of infrastructure. William has more than 15 years of industry experience and has held senior management roles with Macquarie Investment Management Private Markets, Swiss Re, and the Asian Development Bank, where he was responsible for sourcing, due diligence, and financing projects in the infrastructure and renewable sectors. Hi, William. Hi, Sneha. William, to begin with, could you give us an overview of Stafford's activities? Sure. Um, Stafford was founded um, just 20 years ago now by the heads of Pantheon and Pantheon Asia um, with the real desire to um, essentially return to the roots of asset management as Pantheon had grown quite uh, largely during that uh, previous period, which means a fully employee-owned organization, uh, very much teamwork-oriented and time-focused. And the best way we found to do that at the time was to focus on, on niche areas where um, we could really add value. So after starting in PE in Australia in 2000, we added rather quickly Timberland, uh, which was very niche in 2002, especially um, if you did so with a strong secondaries focus, as was our case. Um, so after 10 years of rather solid growth um, in those areas, we acquired in 2014 the secondary businesses of Macquarie um, in infrastructure, sustainability, and venture, uh, together with the full team, of which I was actually a part. Um, we then grew those businesses, added a few others um, over the last um, five or six years, and credit, and also ag and food, and more recently then, um, via the Rubico uh, private equity acquisition we closed last month, last month increased our, our, our offerings in private equity in Europe. Um, so if you look at Stafford today, um, we're now split in two uh, business lines, which are private markets and real assets, which roughly are 50% each of the 7 billion AUM, which, which we now have. Um, private markets itself is then private equity and credit, whereas real assets is timber, infrastructure, and also ag and food. Um, our team is now 70 people strong with uh, eight offices, three of which are in Europe, um, with Zurich, London, and now Rotterdam. Uh, with other offices being Austin, Boston, the US, um, Curitiba in Brazil, uh, Sydney in Australia, and Seoul, Seoul Korea. Um, so that is stuff for today. Let's focus a little bit on infrastructure, which is your specialization. Could you share with us uh, your investment strategy, uh, your investment segments, and geographic focus, maybe? Sure. Um, <clears throat> so infrastructure, as I alluded to just now, actually started in 2010 at Macquarie um, with uh, a lot of head scratching and discussions we had with uh, investors who at the time as we were just coming out of the global financial crisis 
um, had been unsatisfied with what they really uh, obtained uh, when they, they invested in, in infrastructure. There had been long J curves, a lot more market exposure than anticipated, and frankly, not these stable, high-yielding returns that uh, they had been ex expecting. Um, so with these discussions with investors, we uh, realized that the, the best um, approach to do this was really to invest via secondary funds um, in the core infrastructure space. So this is essentially the strategy of what became SISIF uh, 1 and uh, has remained very much uh, true today. So um, we were probably the first at the time uh, to focus on infrastructure secondaries. So although it's not rocket science, it's, uh, it's uh, something that was uh, slightly innovative in those days. Um, in 2014, then, we joined forces with Stafford, who was developing something very similar, had a, had a team already in place, um, and then have been working together uh, to invest the further vehicles, size of two, size of three, and now recently launched our new vehicle um, that is having its, its first close in the, in the coming weeks. Um, and this approach for our new fund then is, is very much unchanged. Secondaries and co-investment focus with a target return of 10%, 5% plus cash yield, um, no additional leverage. Um, we um, we see that for the most part, uh, individual assets are already optimally leveraged. Um, at that level, it's, it seems imprudent to us uh, to add additional leverage at our fund level. Um, so this is not something we do. Uh, we focus still on core infrastructure and what does this mean? Um, well, geographically, uh, we invest mostly in Europe, North America and Australia, where you really have this long regulatory history and framework that you can rely on um, to find the, 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 the true core assets we're seeking. Um, our assets are typically operational, and we use a very quantitative approach um, at the individual asset level when we try to uh, uh, assess risk and whether assets uh, are a good fit, rather than being dogmatic on very uh, strict sector limits. So, we look at each individual asset on what one is the next refinancing, counterparty risk, GDP exposure, ESG risk to really understand these assets from a risk perspective rather than say 10% in airports, 20% in roads, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but if you look at the assets we have acquired uh, as a guide, I think you'll, you'll find a very strong preponderance of PPPs, public-private partnerships, um, utilities, renewables, um, will be the, the largest part of, of, the, of the mix of assets. Um, and more generally, I think we, we like to think we don't do this as a hobby. So we, we have probably one, if not the largest infrastructure secondaries teams, and that's really by design because this allows us, once again, um, to develop these proprietary systems, to do a lot of homework up front, to allow us to be extremely uh, proactive uh, in our in our uh, review of opportunities, in our sourcing of secondaries, understanding who the players are, who the sellers are, and, uh, and who are the most likely, uh, likely ones to transact with us. So just uh, if we focus on the, on the sourcing, in, in the light of the COVID-19 crisis, are you or do you think that you will be seeing more investment opportunities? On aggregate, certainly. Uh, that's, that's really well, what history will tell us, what we saw during the, the global financial crisis, for instance, where you will see an initial drop as investors find their footings, both in terms of their own situation and the, and the, 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 the underlying assets that they have investing, invested in, um, and then an increase in acceleration when you find not only the uh, 
the normal course of business sellers, but on top of that, volatility would create changes in strategy, would create forced sellers, uh, sellers seeking liquidity, for instance. Um, so today, we certainly saw this drop in April and May, um, where you had a very uh, reduced transaction volumes. Uh, but I would say in the last month or so, um, we've, we've seen this rather normal um, transaction volume compared to, to what we're expecting. So I, w I, w I would imagine that in Q4, um, if the situation remains as it is, we will see this acceleration I was uh, talking about. We have the normal volume, but on top of that, uh, you end up having these um, forced sellers coming to market. Um, I think if you look at, and this is quite particularly true in the, this single line transactions, which is uh, what we focus on. If you look at large restructurings, large portfolio sales, that may actually be delayed a bit longer, probably a bit until uh, uh, Q1 next year, uh, given that uh, those more complex transactions require a uh, larger aggregation of capital and that, that will take a bit more time to, uh, to be achievable. Um, from a price perspective, um, we, we would also imagine that um, that this uh, this will, this uh, this overall volatility creating more volume should help um, uh, pricing to remain very very healthy for buyers uh, and we were hopeful that we would continue uh, to exceed uh, this fourteen percent discount for instance we had in our in our current fund. But if you think of it really, um, this this is a help um, to secondary buyers uh, in the space, but. Um, the, the biggest story by far is really this uh, the, 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 the incredible increase we've seen in primary fundraising in infrastructure over the last five years. This has gone from roughly 50 billion uh, four or five years ago to 109 billion uh, last year. And as we see secondary investing or secondary um, market as being a derivative of the primary market, typically 10% of whatever is raised on the, on the primary side ends up on the secondary side five years later. Um, so this doubling of the, the market over the last five years, this story has already been written independently of the, the COVID situation and should lead us from this four to five billion market size today to an eight to 10 billion um, market size over the course uh, of the investment period of our next fund. So that's, that's a fantastic tailwind, which may well and should be assisted by um, by the COVID situation, but the, the, that I think is really the, the, the largest driver. So talking about uh, the situation uh, now on your current investments, uh, how has lockdown, for example, which was quite long, impacted your investments? Do you think uh, that the performance of your current funds will suffer or take longer to realize because of this? Well, for, for infrastructure, I mean, it's true that, uh, that COVID was really a black swan. If you look at it from the, the depth and also the breadth of its impact on, on some of the infrastructure sector. If you think about the air traffic, uh, for the last few months, uh, global air traffic has been down 80% uh, compared to last year's volume. That, this is really unprecedented, very difficult uh, uh, to predict for any investor. Um, it was also a test um, for some of the assets that people had fairly bravely um, enabled this infrastructure over the last few years. I'm thinking about uh, assets that were strongly exposed to commodity or GDP. Um, think amusement parks, think of oil and gas exposed assets, but also um, uh, merchant power uh, plants, for instance. Um, so with, with our focus um, on core infrastructure, uh, our portfolio was not immune, uh, but uh, as we had mostly availability, regulated and contracted assets, there's been a much more muted impact than, than we, we've seen uh, in other individual funds. And on top of that, 
I think we, we've uh, been blessed with a very high diversification, which is really one of the features of secondaries. We have through our three vehicles over 350 assets. Um, so if you think of airports, as I was mentioning earlier, well, that that clearly um, those clearly would be impacted. I'm not sure we've really seen the, the full uh, reflection of that in NAD yet. But for us, overall, it's less than two percent of our uh, of our NAD of our fund. So it's uh, it's I think um, uh, really a reminder of the lessons we had learned in 2010, and we had stuck to all these years of the importance of core uh, investing, the importance of uh, of wide diversification. That's really helped us a lot. Yeah, I guess that's an important point. Uh, we will see uh, through these periods who exactly has retained the lessons from the 2008-2010 crisis. Um, let's talk a little bit about you, William. What prompted you to get into the real asset space, uh, into infrastructure in particular? Well, it's usually it was a series of, uh, of coincidences and, and conscious decisions that uh, well, worked out not always for the, for the reasons that, uh, that I had expected. Uh, if you go all, all the way back to the start, I, I studied um, as an engineer both in France and the US, and uh, I started working in the US um, over 20 years ago as a civil engineer. Um, and a few years after that, after realizing that there are some limitations of what you can do as a civil engineer, I returned to the US, got an MBA, um, and was trying to find a way to combine this infra experience I had, civil engineering experience, with this finance uh, experience I had just acquired. Pretty much just at the time when infrastructure um, was uh, coming into its own as, a, as an asset class. Um, and uh, so from there, um, infrastructure finance seemed really the, the, the obvious place to go. Um, so roughly 15 years ago, I interned with, uh, which was the largest house, perhaps a pioneer in the space at the time, Macquarie uh, Bank, um, and started really uh, getting getting to know this this infrastructure project finance space. And from there, worked with uh, the Asian Development Bank, as you mentioned, Swiss Re, then Macquarie again, um, always in the space. And what's really um, kept me and what I really enjoy in this space is obviously first and foremost the, the very uh, tangible benefits that that, that infrastructure brings uh, to, to a whole society um, but also I think personally and this is probably my engineering side coming out that the, the the precision and the, the the exactness with which you can model any asset you're looking at any project uh, as opposed to perhaps the the, the more uh, artsy or guesswork uh, that may be involved and if you look at um, uh, private equity or other, other alternative asset classes so this is something that i found extremely satisfying uh, you can put numbers on the cash flow projections you have and uh, and certainly uh, i continue to enjoy today what advice would you give a young professional who's working in, in real assets today and um, the, the answer may, may really be here in your question in many ways uh, I believe that the future of real assets um, sits in broad, holistic solutions. What I mean by that is, at some point, investors won't really care if you invest in trees, in buildings, and farmlands for, for you, for them. Um, they will simply request um, to get these uncorrelated, high-yielding, stable returns that are somehow the, the hallmark of real assets. Um, so one first piece of advice is, don't specialize too early. Try to get a broader um, a real asset exposure throughout the, these different sub-asset classes. Um, this is something that, that we have taken into account uh, at Stafford. So we offer our analysts uh, the ability to work uh, in the various asset classes. And also something we're starting to 
offer to our investors uh, rather than specific products in infrastructure, timber, or agriculture, rather um, for real asset offerings. Um, and also, real assets, and this is probably more important, have by definition a very large environmental and carbon impacts. And although this is moving, as we all know, too slowly now, there will be at some point a very sudden shift, either by uh, desire of the industry or by reaction to external events. Um, so I, I, I'm convinced that it's crucial for someone who's coming into the industry now to be on the right side of that history in terms of understanding and assessing those risks. And this is not a black swan. We know this is happening. So I would be extremely cautious if I entered this industry um, to enter it on a side that's strongly reliant on free carbon uh, being the norm for the foreseeable future. Um, this is something also we have taken into account at Stafford. Uh, our, our offerings now have very limited uh, fossil fuel exposures, no coal exposures is, a, is, a, is in our, our new fund, for instance. Uh, once again, not only because it's the right ethical thing to do, but because we know that this is proper risk management. Timing is uncertain, but there will be a strong reaction at some point. That makes sense. That makes sense. Uh, before we end this podcast, William, uh, perhaps you would like to share with us a favorite business resource? Um, yeah, well, I mean, we, we certainly make a strong use of all the, the paywall databases that, that uh, industry players would have heard of and, and use um, frequently. I mean, I'm thinking infra deals, prequent, to just name a few. And we certainly recommend that as both for research and, and raw data, given that that really improved a lot in and, and made very good progress over the last few years. Um, but in private markets, by design, um, there aren't any uh, real shortcuts. Um, in our approach, and the one I would suggest uh, others take it as well, is to really waste no data. When data comes in of any sorts, in terms of deals, in terms of assets, in terms of investors, to record it systematically um, in a very granular level as you have it. And this is often something that's hard to foresee when you start, but really bears fruits typically over the years uh, in ways that are very difficult to imagine when you start. Um, we've done this now for over 10 years and are able to see trends within asset classes, within infrastructure, but also across businesses at Stafford um, in ways that would really be impossible if you start today from scratch and certainly uh, uh, if you only rely on the uh, on external databases. So best time to start that is today. And really the advice I would give is to start your own resources, start recording all of this um, so that you can uh, over time uh, have your own uh, very proprietary uh, database. Yeah, data definitely would make uh, all the difference. Thanks a lot, William. It was lovely chatting with you. Thank you, Stephen. And a big thank you to all our listeners. This episode was sponsored by Jasma Capital a placement agent and secondary transaction advisor for private equity, infrastructure, and private debt. Jasma Capital covers Europe, North America, Asia-Pacific, and the Middle East. 